I suffered a stroke live on air while I was speaking to the radio presenter. I wasn't able to complete the radio interview because when the presenter introduced me and when he asked me to speak about the Tipperary Peace Award and the recipient Malala, I couldn't get the words out. I was in hospital for a couple of weeks and then I was sent home and the following months I was sent back into hospital because I had what they call a mini event so I had a mini stroke again I was sent back into hospital and I spent another 10 days there and I came home again and the following months same thing happened I had another mini event and I was sent back in again there is life after stroke it may be different to what it was before but nonetheless it can be very fulfilling and that's something that I'm very conscious of doing of getting that message out there it's very important that if you've had a stroke that you surround yourself with people that are good for you first of all and that people that will help you and ensure that you get the best because the best is what you deserve Hello, this is Stroke Stories and I'm Mark Goodyear. Each year in Ireland, around 10,000 people suffer a stroke. About 2,000 die as a result. That's more deaths than breast cancer, prostate cancer and bowel cancer combined. Ireland has one of the highest rates of administering life-saving, clot-busting treatment in the world. But sometimes patients feel they need more help while they recover. And that's why we started Stroke Stories, the podcast to seek out and to hear from stroke survivors. In this podcast, we hear from Martin Quinn, who suffered a stroke at the age of 53. Before my stroke, I suppose life was very normal, very busy. I was holding down a full-time job and I was involved in numerous organisations, too many to mention. So I was leading a very busy life. I have uh, two daughters and I was busy looking after them as well. So uh, life in general was very busy for me. Because of the different and varied organizations that I was involved in, there was quite a degree of stress involved with those organizations, with at least some of the organizations, you know, because the nature of them, they can be very stressful, particularly if you're involved at a level of being an officer in an organization. When the stroke occurred, I was doing a radio interview by telephone to my local radio station. One of the organizations that I am very involved in is the Peace Convention in Tipperary in Ireland and the Tipperary International Peace Award, which is very well known worldwide. And the particular day that I was doing the interview, I was going to announce that Malala Yousafzai, the Pakistani teenager who was shot in the head by the Taliban and made a, a miraculous recovery, 
I was announcing that Malala was to get the Peace Award. So unlike most people probably, I suffered a stroke live on air while I was speaking to the radio presenter. In the weeks and months leading up to his stroke, Martin was finding that work was becoming increasingly demanding. I knew I was in a stressful situation, particularly with one organisation which was very troublesome at the time and I had taken on too much, really, and I was stressed about it, trying to get get everything uh, resolved there. I knew, really, that I was taking on too much, but I wanted to try and see it through because, you know, if I'm asked to take on a job, I'm very committed to it and I'll see it through to the bitter end, you know, so... I knew I'd taken on too much and I realised that all right, but I didn't think for one minute that it might have any health consequence, if you like. You know, I just knew that it was very stressful. I felt perfectly well beforehand. I had been at work. Uh, I was in the office where I was working And there was a colleague of mine who was there with me. And he mentioned afterwards that he thought maybe that I responded strangely, maybe in my answers to a couple of things that we were chatting about. But he didn't notice anything particularly wrong with me apart from that. And I felt perfectly fine. I left the office when my telephone rang And I went out to sit in my car to take the telephone call from the radio station. So I actually felt fine doing that. Martin's stroke began to affect him more and more while he was on air. I wasn't able to complete the radio interview because when the presenter introduced me and when he asked me to speak about the Tipperary Peace Award and the recipient, Malala, I couldn't get the words out. I knew what I wanted to say, but nothing would happen. And then I kind of got a flow of speech together, but it was real kind of fast, if you like. It was like pushing the door that's stuck or something. You push it and it goes flying open. I suppose That's the way it was with me, that the speech suddenly came flying out, but it wasn't very coherent. And the presenter asked me a second question, and the same thing happened. He just cut a chart and made excuses and stopped the interview. And I just sat in the car for a few moments. I didn't know what was going on. I knew that I wasn't able to complete the interview. But if you were to ask me even now, what did I think was happening? I didn't know. I knew that there was something serious happening to me, but I had no idea what it was. So after I sat for a while in the car, I got out. I was still perfectly mobile at that stage. I got out and I went back into the office and I locked it up because I knew that I needed to get home. And I had this searing 
pain in my head. It wasn't like a migraine or a headache. It was a searing pain, like as if something was drilling down into the top of my head. And I locked up the office. It's hard to believe, but I got back into my car. I started it up and I drove home. The journey home was relatively short, but nevertheless, thinking back about it afterwards, it was a terribly dangerous thing that I did uh, because I could have crashed myself or I could have crashed into somebody. But of course, I had no idea what was happening to me. So I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. All that was in my head was I wanted to get home. And thankfully, I got home safely. I got in the door and I just kind of threw myself down on the couch to sleep, as I thought, and sleep off this headache that I had. It was actually the following day that I got help because of the fact that my daughters were away through school or whatever that particular day through college and they weren't going to be at home. They had come in and out a couple of times, but they weren't going to be at home overnight. So they just presumed that I had a very bad migraine, which I had suffered from. So they didn't consider that there was anything serious wrong with me. And it wasn't until the following day I had taken myself off to bed. I had a very disturbed sleep. I had quite a lot of nightmares and didn't kind of know where I was and all of that kind of thing. But I knew the following morning that I was in serious trouble. I was unable to get out of bed unaided. Like I, I had to get down onto the floor in order to try and get out, you know, to the telephone. And when I looked at my mobile phone, all I could see was a jumble. I couldn't see the numbers. My sight was affected, obviously, and everything was just a jumble in front of me. And I managed to get myself down on my backside, if you like, down the stairs to get to the phone. The phone that I have in the house is big and, and the numbers were big and I felt that I would be able to ring the doctor from that. So it was the following day when I got help. Later on that day, I got in touch with the doctor and my daughter had arrived home and she was immediately alarmed because I was bumping into things I couldn't, if I stood up, I, you know, my balance was gone and she spoke to the doctor on the telephone and the doctor advised that I be brought to hospital straight away. Once Martin arrived at hospital, they didn't diagnose him straight away. It took a bit of time for them to work it out, which I found to be very regrettable because I was on a trolley in a corridor and there was a busy hospital and people coming and going and I was very disorientated and uh, when they were asking me questions, I couldn't really answer the questions because my speech had been affected. And I found that very difficult. And I found that it was quite a while afterwards when it dawned on them that I might have had a stroke. And they sent me for a scan and brought me back. I was still on a trolley in a corridor when the doctor came round 
and told me that I'd had a stroke. I was in hospital for a couple of weeks and then I was sent home and the following month I was sent back into hospital because I had what they call a mini event. So I had a mini stroke again. I was sent back into hospital and I spent another 10 days there and I came home again and the following month same thing happened. I had another mini event and I was sent back in again. One of the occasions I just lost my speech completely. I couldn't speak at all. In fact, when I was in the hospital, one of the nurses came up to me with the speech therapist and they were asking me to say simple things, you know, maybe like cow or sheep or whatever. And I couldn't. Uh, I mean, I could pint them out, all right, but I, I couldn't say them. I remember very clearly the physiotherapist picking up a cup, a white cup that was on my table, and she's saying, what is this? And I couldn't say it. And she kind of persevered and said, try now, try push yourself to say what it is. And I just broke down. I couldn't. I couldn't say it. She then apologized and said she shouldn't have done that, that she shouldn't have put me under that kind of pressure to try and save the word when I couldn't do it. But that's what she did. You know, she put me under pressure and then I just couldn't at all, you know. So it took me considerable periods of time to get uh, my speech back. During his recovery from stroke, Martin had to contend with more than just the physical after effects. There was a huge emotional knock-on effect. They discharged me from the hospital. They didn't have any follow-up. They didn't refer me to the public health nurse. They didn't refer me to speech and language. They didn't refer me to physiotherapy. I was just no place. I described it as being like jumping into the river without a life jacket. You know, I just was left there and I had to fight. I had to get onto my local public representatives to try and get me referred into therapy services. And I wrote to the minister. I wrote to the consultants. I wrote to anybody that I could draw attention to my plight because I felt here I am relatively young man in my early 50s and I was just left on on the heap if you like and without any follow-up so I had to fight very hard. The public health nurse eventually when she did come to see me she was very annoyed that I hadn't been referred. She said it was amazing she just couldn't understand how I hadn't been referred after having a stroke but that was the case. And I eventually got referred to therapy services in uh, Cashel, which is about 12 miles from me. And uh, I was able to get over and back to those day services. Those services was the beginning of my rehabilitation. Martin's very public stroke was followed by a period of frustration, confusion and emotional turmoil. However, he overcame those difficulties and made an extraordinary recovery. 
Still to come on Stroke Stories, Martin explains his passion for advocacy. I got very involved, actually, as an advocate, if you like, for stroke support services. And I've attended many events speaking about my experience. I travel a good bit. I'm going to Paris this week to participate in the SAFE Alliance, their conference in Paris and uh, representing the Irish Heart Foundation. And he talks about still being grateful for his current situation. I've recovered. A lot of people haven't recovered and haven't recovered as well as I have. You know, so I have to be thankful for what I've got, despite the fact that I got a stroke and it deprived me of so much. You know, I have to look now at what I have and that's the way I look at everything now. Let's hear Martin's one goal that got him through his recovery. Because of the kind of person that I am, as I mentioned earlier, I'm very determined when I take on something, I suppose. And one of the things that really pushed me in my recovery was that the girl that I was talking about initially, Malala Yousafzai, I knew that she would be coming to Tipperary at some stage during that year to receive the Peace Award. And I was determined that I would be back on my feet and in a position to welcome her when she came. And so I was very motivated, if you like, to do that. Something happened to me as well when I was in hospital A couple of well-meaning visitors came to see me in the hospital and I knew they were shocked because I couldn't really converse with them properly. You know, I could answer maybe a little bit, but I couldn't converse with them properly. And I knew that they were shocked that the person that they had known that could speak to anybody and in front of anybody suddenly was unable to speak. And their reaction was that I'd never be able to to do public speaking again and I wouldn't be able to present the Tipperary Peace Award. And And initially, while that upset me greatly, it really did. It, it, uh, It reduced me to tears when they left and I was really very upset over it. But... It actually acted as a bit of motivation to me in another way because I said, uh, I'm going to prove them wrong and I'm going to show them that I can do this. And so I worked very hard and the speech and language therapist that I have was absolutely brilliant. She worked very hard with me and I did all my homework and I did everything that I was asked of by the physios and the physical therapists and, you know, whatever I was asked to do, I did. And thankfully, when Malala came to Tipperary later that year, I was able to welcome her and address her. And that was a major achievement for me. And Malala and her dad got to hear about the fact that I'd had a stroke and she took great interest in my recovery because, of course, she had been shot in the head and she'd lost 
her hearing and she'd lost her speech. And she took great interest in comparing notes with me in relation to how we had regained our speech, both of us, you know. So it was really fantastic that that I was able to do that. After his stroke, Martin found navigating daily life difficult. It was very difficult time uh, for my daughters particularly, you know, because here was I, a very active man and very involved and going to things and they used to come with me and here I was suddenly couldn't do anything effectively. When I met people, people would be reluctant maybe to get to engage in conversation because if you couldn't converse back with them fully, you know, they'd be inclined to answering the sentence for you, you know, nearly. And I suppose it's just a natural thing that they're embarrassed maybe to a degree. And that is a common thing, I think. You know, even now I'm a member of the aphasia group because uh, we have an aphasia group in South Tipperary and some people have different stages of it. You know, some people have very little speech and some people are good like myself but it's amazing when they and their carers when we get together when they talk about public and the embarrassment maybe that public will shy away if people can't communicate properly you know after martin realized that aftercare services in his local area were somewhat lacking he decided to become an advocate for greater stroke support there was a stroke support group in Clanmel, but Clanmel is quite a distance now from me. It it is in excess of twenty miles or whatever. I didn't know anybody there, and it was a small stroke support group. And I did get to know the people that were in the aphasia group. All right, we struck up uh, a good friendship, I think, with everybody in the aphasia group, and that is still happening to date. But unfortunately, we have no stroke support group now in our area. The stroke support group that was there has died a couple of years ago, a few years ago. So I've been fighting hard with the Irish Heart Foundation to try and get stroke support services for Tipperary. And a lot of it comes down to funding, of course, getting funding from the Department of Health and I'm lobbying and campaigning on that at the moment. I got very involved, actually, as an advocate, if you like, for stroke support services. And I've attended many events speaking about my experience. I travel a good bit. I'm going to Paris this week to participate in the SAFE Alliance, their conference in Paris and uh, representing the Irish Heart Foundation. And uh, so I do a lot of advocacy work, but it's important that we get proper services for stroke survivors and their families. I went back to my old job, but I found that I just wasn't able for the job and the pressure of it and what was entailed in it. And I had to retire. I had to take early retirement from my job 
uh, which was a huge blow to me because, of course, financially, I didn't qualify for any pension entitlements or anything like that from the job itself. So I just had to rely on the state invalidity support. And uh, that was a big drawback to me. But you learn to adjust to tighter earnings and tighter controls. And that's something that presents difficulties, I think, for anybody that has to retire from their work if they have no pension or anything like that to fall back on. But I kept up my voluntary work and that's something that I'm continuing to do. It gives me a focus. It gives me something to get up for in the mornings and it gives me enjoyment as well of doing it voluntarily that the same pressure isn't there that I have to do it, I suppose, if you like. If I wanted to in the morning, I could walk away from any of those voluntary things that I'm doing. But I enjoy that because it gives me satisfaction. And I feel that I'm giving something back as well, that I'm also informing people about my story and my recovery, apart from the other volunteer work that I do. I think it's important to let people know that, you know, there is life after stroke. It may be different to what it was before, but nonetheless, it can be very fulfilling. And that's something that I'm very conscious of doing, of getting that message out there. I guess I was always, and I am always someone that looks at the glasses being half full rather than half empty, you know. So even if I was feeling any bit down when I was in hospital, I had reason, I suppose, to feel very despondent when I lost my speech completely and that. But I quickly put it out of my mind. I quickly looked at motivating myself to get better. I looked, I suppose, around me at others that were worse off than myself because, you know, whatever story you have, there's always a worse story out there. And I thought, how lucky I am. I've recovered. A lot of people haven't recovered and haven't recovered as well as I have. You know, so I have to be thankful for what I've got despite the fact that I got a stroke and it deprived me of so much, you know, I have to look now at what I have. And that's the way I look at everything now. I would like to continue to do my advocacy work. You know, I would like to continue to go out to schools and to go to groups and organizations and speak about the work in relation to my recovery and hope that it will inspire people. And uh, I know that I've spoken to a lot of health related groups, professionals and others, and I tell them my story and I answer their questions and I hope that it inspires them, that it shows that, as I mentioned, that there is life after serious illness and that there is a way forward, even through the darkness. There's a priest uh, that 
founded a community development organization in Ireland. It has an Irish name. It's called Muinternatira, and it means the people of the land. And he founded it back in 1937. And he was a great visionary, a great man for rural Ireland. And uh, Canon John Hayes was his name. And he had a great phrase that he used to speak about, that it is better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. So that's, I suppose, what I have grasped and held on to. And finally, here are a few crucial things that Martin believes all stroke survivors should focus on. I would say to people, it's important to reach out. It's important to get support. It's important to fight, you know, because I've learned over my life experiences, including having the stroke, that you have to fight for things, you know, nothing comes handed to you easy and you do have to fight. And for people that haven't the voice, you know, others around them need to be their voice, you know, so anybody surrounding somebody that has had a stroke and can't talk for themselves, the others have to talk for them. And that's something that I feel very strongly about is that we need better services and we need better support and we have to work together in order to do that. And there is strength in numbers and that's why it's very important that if you've had a stroke that you surround yourself with people that are good for you first of all and that people that will help you and ensure that you get the best because the best is what you deserve. So you have to fight for us, but we all have to fight together. Martin's progress has been amazing, from being unable to speak at all to hosting an awards ceremony in front of a large crowd. Martin hasn't once let his stroke hold him back. If you're listening to this podcast and have had a stroke or somebody close to you has, and you'd like to learn more, search for The Stroke Association online. And for a dedicated webpage, search for NHS Strokes. And if you're listening on iTunes, please subscribe, rate and comment. It'll help us spread the word. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening.